Good morning. Good morning. My name is Rich Joy. I'm serving as interim pastor here at Calvary. Uh, good to be with you this morning. I want us to pause for just a moment and pray for Israel uh, at this point in our service. I'm sure um, most or all of you know by now that uh, terrorist group Hamas has been bombing and attacking Israel. Um, and Psalm 122 tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to pray for its prosperity and a blessing. And Israel has always factored in as a significant um, part of God's unfolding story. And it's important for us, especially at this time, to pray for them. And so what I'm going to do, instead of saying just a long pastoral prayer, I'm going to call us all to pray. I'm going to leave a little bit of uh, quiet silence so that each of us around the room and at home can offer up prayers. And then I'll bring it together with a prayer. And to help us know how to pray and what to pray for, we got this letter from Jews for Jesus. It says, Dear friends, uh, today Hamas launched a highly coordinated attack on Israel. This attack included thousands of rockets as well as ground forces from the land and sea. Estimated hundreds have already been killed and many more injured. As I write this, the fighting continues. The homes of some of our staff have been hit. Others have been called up to serve in Gaza with the IDF. Please stand with us in fervent prayer for Israel. Pray with all your heart for peace, for families who have lost loved ones and for lives to be saved on all sides. Pray that our staff would be divinely shielded and empowered to continue demonstrating the love of Jesus. Uh, so would you join me in prayer? And as I said, I'm going to leave some time for all of us around the room and at home to pray, and then I'll, I'll uh, bring us together in a prayer. So, Lord, we lift these prayers to you all around this room and at home um, to ask you to intervene, to bring peace, to protect people who are in such danger right now, to bring peace and comfort to families who have lost people they love, that you would protect lives on all sides, that you would protect the people who are in there trying to help and serve and call people to you, uh, that you would just have your hand upon this. We uh, don't know how this could all resolve, Lord. But we know it matters, and we know people are being harmed. So we lift them up to you, Lord, and ask for your help and your intervention, and that you would bring peace as only you can, and comfort and protection where it's needed. We ask you for this for Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to be back with you. I was not here last Sunday, in case you didn't notice, I wasn't here. Um, but I do want to thank Jim. He did a great job last week. Um, explaining reconciliation from the passages we were in in Colossians, and I, I thought he did a brilliant job. And uh, he had this beautiful whiteboard up here with a, a really great diagram, perfectly proportioned stick figures. I was so impressed with his artwork because it's just uh, leaps and bounds beyond my own. That's why I don't do the whiteboard thing. Um, but thank you, Jim, for, um, for uh, pitching in for me. My wife and I were at a conference in Colorado Springs, a ministry that she and I lead uh, is for pastors and their spouses. We help, we coach, we support, we do retreats. Uh, we just try to support people who are in ministry. We've been doing that for about five years, and this was a national conference for people who shepherd shepherds. There were 150 of us, and we had a great conference, and then we, uh, we had extended our stay 
uh, a few, uh, some extra days and we traveled through the national parks in Colorado and Utah. And it was just, it was a great trip. We had that scheduled uh, before I was uh, asked to take this position as pastor here at Calvary. So the elders honored that time and uh, we just had a, a really great, great time away. But it's good to be back with you. We're in the book of Colossians and uh, the first part of the first chapter that we've covered over the last few weeks has been addressing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, because one of the heresies that was creeping into the Colossian church was that Jesus was just one of many gods. He wasn't the one and only God. He was one of many. And so Paul is addressing this in this letter to the Colossian church, saying, oh no, oh no, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one higher. There's no name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. Jesus is supreme. And he spent the whole first part of his letter making that point. Now we're moving on, and still at the end of the first chapter, moving into the second one, Paul is addressing the second heresy that was creeping into the Colossian church. And it was this, that some people had secret knowledge. Some people had hidden knowledge that other people didn't have. They had insights that drew them closer to the deity and the many gods they were serving that only they had. And Paul, we're going to see in this next section, says, not so. There is no hidden knowledge that some people get that other people are deprived of. That what God has revealed, he's revealed for all. And we're going to look at the verses where Paul says that. But I want to just have you ask yourself before we look at those, Do we do this today? The Colossian church was doing it. Many of the New Testament churches were struggling with this idea that some people had more knowledge than others, that some people were more blessed than others, that in God's view, some people were insiders and some people were not. Do we do this today? Actually, I think we do. Have you ever thought, oh, that person has way more knowledge about the Bible than I do? That person's got an inside track with God. That person's life seems way more blessed than mine. Have you ever thought like that? And like any good lie, that's a lie, by the way. But like any good lie, there's a little bit of truth in it. Because the truth is, there are people in this room and at home who know more about the Bible than other people in the room because they've studied it, because they've read it, because they've applied themselves to it. There are people whose walk seems to track more closely with the way the Bible tells us to follow Jesus and others. Um, and it's, what we need to remember, though, is the lie part of that is it's not because God has given them some secret insight that he hasn't offered to you. What we're going to see in these verses is that the mystery of Christ is revealed for all of us. Here's another place we do it. We often tend to take our pastors and elevate them. In fact, I'm standing higher than you are right now. <laughs> But don't we do that? We take, this, is, this, this really hurts my heart, and we do this in the American church. We take our celebrity mindset, our love of celebrities that we've learned from the world, and we bring it into the church, and we like to make our pastors celebrities too. We have our celebrity pastors, the ones we watch on TV or in certain churches where we say, oh, that pastor, he's just way more blessed than everyone else. And God does bless, and he uses people differently. But what we we tend to do, or maybe I should just say I tend to do, is I I will tend to rank people if I'm not careful and say this person's more important to God than this person is. That's a lie. And just so you'll know that the person who stands on this stage talking to you is pure flesh and blood human, 
I thought I should just re- reveal something to you that is um, embarrassingly honest about me. Uh, I said we were away these last couple weeks, and we were driving through the national parks. We were driving on some crazy, crazy roads. Let me show you this picture. This is a picture of one of the roads we were on. Um, it drops off into a canyon. There's no shoulder. There are a few little stones on the side of the road to keep you from going over the edge. Some of these roads, many of these roads, didn't even have the stones on the side of the road. I was driving when we hit the first one of these curves. And here's the embarrassing truth about me. I started to get this fear in the pit of my stomach that worked its way up to my chest and out my arms and to my hands. I couldn't drive. I was, I was almost at the point of a panic attack driving because I felt like I was going to go right over the edge. It was so bad, I pulled over and said, Heidi, you're going to have to drive. And she drove the next few days, all the parks we went through, with me with my eyes closed for most of it. <laughs> I took, just to show you how terrifying it was, I took this next video out the window of our car while Heidi was driving. Do we have it, Dave? If we, oh, yeah, that's it. It's short, it's like 10 seconds. I held the phone out the window, I closed my eyes. Is it, oh, that's running, okay. Look at that. It scares me just looking at the video. And because my wife loves me so much, uh, she kept posing me in places like this. You have that, that next picture? She'd say, this was a drop-off, I'm right on the edge. She'd say, stand right here, because I need a person in this picture to give me perspective of how big this is. And she left me standing there. And she'd walk away, and then she'd say things like, step a little bit to your left. Step a little bit. And I would be like this. It looks like I'm raising my arms in exuberant joy. I'm actually trying to balance myself. I was paralyzed in this position. She picked me up and carried me to the car after that. This was true of me. I want you to know that your pastors, including me, are flesh and blood human people who serve God in the capacity we've been called to serve. And I believe, on a serious note, Calvary Church, we could take that picture down now. (laughs) I'm willing to embarrass myself just so much. Um, Calvary Church, I actually believe that God has a word for you today that's really important for you to hear. And it's this. You are the church. All of you. Everyone. All of you are the church. You at home, you in the room, together make up the church. We're in the process here at Calvary of calling the next full-time lead pastor. That man, when he comes here, will not be the church. His job description is very clear in Ephesians chapter 4. His job is to equip the people to do the work of the church. His job when he comes here is to teach you, train you, shepherd you, guide you, coach you, cheerlead you, encourage you, so that you can do the work of the church that God has called you to. All of you. All of you. So you at home, um, I'm so glad that we have the technology to connect for those of you who are at home who really can't get to this room, that you can be together with your brothers and sisters through this live stream. But some of you at home, you're staying home because it's easy. And I want to say to you, you're part of the all. You need to be in this room with your brothers and sisters, part of Calvary Church. And you in this room, all, every one of you in the seats are part of what God is doing 
And God is doing something here at Calvary Church. And together, each one of you is part of it. So I want you to hold that in your mind. To me, as I prepared this, that came to the forefront as the thing God wants you to hear today. Is the church is not the pastor. The church is not leaders. The church is not a person. You all and every one of you are Calvary Church. And God is doing something here. And you all, everyone, need to be a part of it. So hold that in your mind. We're going to go through some verses in Colossians, and I'm going to go through some of them kind of quickly, where Paul says, there's no hidden mystery. God has revealed it all to you. So listen for what Paul says in these verses. We're going to start in Colossians 1, verses 24 and 25. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become his servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Notice here that Paul starts with his suffering. He says, I'm suffering. He calls himself a servant. He mentions his afflictions. Why would he do that first? Paul, if he were alive today, doing what he was doing in that day, he'd be one of our celebrity pastors. He'd be somebody we say like, wow, Paul. Paul is amazing. Paul is great. Paul should be on TV. Paul should have a big national, international ministry. That's what we'd be saying about Paul. But what Paul always says about himself, always is, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. He humbles himself. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the greatest of sinners. He never promotes himself as a celebrity. And it's really important to understand that that's how he starts this, because he goes on to say, you all, all of us together are the church. And then in this passage, he says, I've worked as a servant to present to you the word of God in its fullness. We've seen this word fullness before. It's the Greek word pleroma. Paul used it just a few verses earlier when he said the fullness of deity was in Jesus Christ. This word means completeness, no gap, absolutely everything. The fullness of the word. So what Paul is saying here is, I am bringing all of you, all of the fullness of God's word. I'm not withholding a piece of it. There's not a secret section that's just for someone else. My job, Paul said, as I suffered and struggled and served, was to bring all of the word of God to all of you. And then he goes on to say in 26 and 27, the... Uh, he presents the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery. He calls it a mystery. And I think he's doing it tongue-in-cheek here because the Greek word for mystery, mysterion, right here, it means secret doctrine. See, the Colossians thought some people had a secret doctrine. So what Paul is saying here, the secret doctrine that has been kept hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to all the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery here it is. You know what the mystery is? You know what the secret is? You know what the big truth is? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we're going to return to that later. I want to keep moving on. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim. Paul is saying, if there's a secret doctrine, it's Jesus. And we've given you Jesus. We've explained it to all of you in every way, as much as we can. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone. That's my emphasis. Everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone 
fully mature in Christ. Have you read this passage before? Have you ever noticed how many times Paul says all and everyone here? Admonishing and teaching some, select few, privileged ones, not at all, everyone, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I seriously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So let's take a pause here so you can think. Paul is writing this to the Colossian church, but what does it mean to you today? As I read this scripture to you and say that God has revealed his big mystery, Jesus, to you, to everyone, what does that mean for you as you sit in the seat here at Calvary Church or you connect from home at Calvary Church? That you matter. You are a part of this. You might feel sometimes like you're on the outer edge of the circle, but you're not, the scripture says. You're an insider. You're on the inside track. You're part of the all. You're part of the everyone. I just want that to sink in. Because far too easily do we conclude that other people are more favored than we are. You might think that other people are more favored in God's sight than you are. That's a lie. It's not the truth. All right, let's move on. Um, Colossians um, 2, 1 1 and 2. Paul writes again, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. Do you remember Laodicea? How many people were here when uh, Pastor Peter was going through the Revelation series? Do you remember the seven letters to the seven churches? It was at the beginning of the series, so it's probably a year ago. Uh, Laodicea, you remember which church that was? It was the lukewarm church, the one that Jesus said, you're not hot, you're not cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Paul's writing that here, is that I'm contending for Laodicea. They're the church that got lukewarm. They got kind of milky. How does a church get lukewarm? How does a church lose its fiery passion? You start letting these uh, false thinking get in. You start thinking that, well, maybe Jesus isn't the only God, or maybe there's another way to God, or maybe if I'm just good enough, or you start thinking that some people have the the corner on the market. This group of people, they're going to do everything in the church. This 20%, they're going to do everything. So let's let them do it. That's how a church gets lukewarm, and that's what happened to Laodicea, and that's what was happening happening in the Colossian church. So he says, I'm struggling for them and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, which is Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, Uh, If you have children in Christian heritage or if you've been in the building across the street, you will recognize this verse. It's plastered on the walls. It says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, Paul is saying, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus is available to all. Colossians 2, 4, and 5, we'll keep going. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. 
For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. Fine-sounding arguments. That's what was happening in the Colossian church. Some people were convincing other people with fine-sounding arguments, with things that seemed like they made sense, that maybe that there was another way to look at this Christianity thing. Maybe Jesus wasn't supreme. Maybe some people know more than others. And as this insidious thought got passed from person to person, it became a fine-sounding argument that people believed. I think we do that today, too. I think we have to be really careful in the church today about being on guard against fine-sounding arguments. And there are, there are several of them. I thought of a couple that I think are pretty common, that as a church here at Calvary and a church across the country and the world, we have to be careful about. But I think especially in America, because of some of our American values and how we're raised in this country. Here's the, the first one I thought of, is uh, faith versus works. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace and the, the faith in Jesus Christ. It's his work on the cross that makes us righteous before God. And every one of us who have come to Jesus have believed that. We put our faith in him in the work he did on the cross, and the grace that God offers us for our righteousness, our salvation, our redemption. But then we go on to live out our Christian life in works. And we, we say things, this used to be a phrase, I don't hear it as much now as when I was younger, but I used to hear things in the church like, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that phrase? There's a danger in that, because it implies that God will only help me if I'm doing something. That's not grace. The Bible says that while I was powerless, while I was helpless, Jesus saved me. He didn't wait for me to make myself better. And we understand this when we come to Jesus, but we forget it when we walk with Jesus. And we think, I've got to do things to prove to God that I have faith. We also have to remember that in every lie, there's a truth. This is a lie that you have to work, that you have to be good to maintain your salvation, to maintain God's favor upon you. But the truth is, faith should produce some works. If I have faith in Jesus, it should produce certain fruit. I should grow in love, peace, patience, joy. There should be some fruit coming out of that. What we have to be careful is not to reverse that. Say, from my faith, good works grow out. Not, I do good works to grow my faith. That's a fine-sounding argument we have to be careful of. Here's another one. God wants to bless you, make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, he does want you to be wise, and true wisdom comes from him. But there's a danger in this fine-sounding argument because it very easily slides to the point that if you're good and you do the things God wants you to do, he will bless you with a lot of money or a bigger house or wealth in this world or an easy life or guaranteed good health. God will make all your paths smooth. But when you read the Bible and you read about every person who followed God, their path never looked like that. They lost things. They gave things up. They struggled through life. Somehow we've flipped this around and we've accepted a very fine-sounding argument that says, if I walk with Jesus, life will just be so wonderful because I'll have all these things. And 
and all of the possessions I want. But the truth of it is, if I walk with Jesus, life will be wonderful because I walk with Jesus. Not because of what he might or might not give me. So we have to be careful about letting fine-sounding arguments change some of our thinking. How do we? How do we stand guard against those things? How do we make sure we're not deceived, like Paul said, by some of these fine-sounding arguments? Here are a few ways I thought of. I've got to read my Bible regularly. I've got to read my Bible regularly because that's where the truth is. And I have to inform my mind from God's truth. I can't bring my mind and the truth I think I know to the Bible. I have to start with the Bible and get it into my mind so it can inform my mind of what's true. I have to be around other people to help me keep my thinking straight. It's being here together. It's hearing teaching from the Bible. It's sitting in an adult discipleship class after this to learn what's true so that I can discern what's true and what's not. It's prayer. It's asking God. It's asking the Holy Spirit to guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's testing everything against the Word of God and against the conviction of the Spirit as a group together. How do we guard against it? We ask for God's protection and mercy, and we immerse our mind in his word, and we stand together to protect against fine-sounding arguments that, excuse me, can deceive us. So I said we were going to come back around to Christ and me, the hope of glory, and I want to spend the the remainder of my uh, time sharing thoughts with you on this thought. Paul is saying that the great mystery that's been revealed to all is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. What what does that mean, Christ in you? I want to walk us through the history of God's presence from Old Testament days to right now so that we can get our minds around again this idea of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Because there was a day when the presence of God was confined. Not because some force was holding it in place, it was because God chose to show up in a certain place, and it was called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark, which was a wooden trunk, it was overlaid with gold, had cherubim on it. Inside that Ark uh, were the stone tablets that uh, Moses got with the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and a, a container of the manna that God gave to his people on a daily basis as Moses led the people to freedom from their slavery in Egypt. This ark became the the center focus of God's presence. When people wanted to be near God, they had to get near the ark. If they were miles away from the ark, then they were miles away from God's presence. Now we know God's presence is everywhere. You can't really get away from God's presence. But in this day, in Old Testament times, when Moses was leading the people and God was establishing Israel as a nation in that process, He said, here is where I will put my presence. And that ark was kept inside a temple, inside the tabernacle, where people could not really get at it. Fast forward a little bit uh, toward the New Testament, after the temple was built, that, uh, that temple was set up so that the presence of God was very contained inside of it. The temple was actually... Uh, configured of room inside room inside room. 
And I want to kind of explain what that would look like today so we can get an idea of where the presence of God was and how hard it was for people to get close to it. So if this were the temple, if Calvary Church right now were the temple that existed in Jesus' day, it would look like this. Out in the parking lot would be the court of the Gentiles and God-fearers. So if you were someone who believed in the one true God, but you were not Jewish, if you were a Gentile God-fearer, and you wanted to come near the presence of God and worship at the temple, you had to stay in the parking lot. That was your section. You were not allowed in the building. That's also where the money changers set up out there. If you came into the lobby, that was the court of women. So women, that's where you would stay. You'd be out in the lobby. If you could come inside, in the back of the room, that was the section for men. And all of these are separated off. They're segregated off from each other. So we have Gentiles in the parking lot, women in the lobby, men in the back of the room. Up here in the front would be the priest doing priestly things right here. And this would be called the holy place right here where the priests were. And then if you came one more step up onto the platform, this is the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. This is where the presence of God would be. It's cordoned off with a huge curtain. It's, um, let me make sure I have this right. It's 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, and six inches thick. And it separates the most holy place from the holy place and the men and the women and the Gentiles. This is where the presence of God was. One priest, once per year, came in through the opening in the curtain to make atonement for the sins of the people. They tied a rope around that priest in case God was not happy with them and he killed them in there. They could pull him out by the rope because you weren't allowed to go in. One priest, once a year. If that one priest dies, if he's not tied to a rope, he's in there by himself all year. Someone's got to get him next year. So they pull him out with a rope. The presence of God behind that curtain in the most holy place. And then what happens? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Jesus goes to the cross. He gives himself up on the cross. Remember what happened at the end? As he was dying there, he breathed his last breath. He said, it's done. It's, fi it's finished. He gave up his spirit. And when he did, the Bible says, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In my mind, I see God's hands grab the top of that curtain and tear it open. Tear it open. For many years, I took that to mean that, that um, now we could all go into the most holy place. Priests come in. Men come in. Women come in. Gentiles come in. Everybody come into the most holy place. There's no curtain anymore keeping everyone out. I thought of it that way for so many years until a few years ago. I heard someone teach it this way. When God ripped that curtain open, he was releasing his presence. It was no longer contained, not that you could contain the presence of God, but he chose to say, my presence resides here. If you want to be near me, you have to get close to this. But it was segregated. It was sectioned off. You could only get just so close. When the temple curtain ripped open, his presence was released. Now where's the temple? The Bible says we are now the temple of God. You are now the temple of God. If you are a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Your body is now the temple of God. 
Where is the presence of God? It's Christ in me. You can't get any closer than that. It's Christ in me. So what does that mean? It means you don't have to go to a designated holy place like the temple to try to get close enough to the front for God to hear your prayers, to be close to his presence. He's as close as your breath, the Bible says. He's as close as a brother. He knows the next words on your lips before you speak them. He knows every hair on your head. God is as close as close can be. That's what this means now for us. Christ in me. He's in me. Now, we have to be careful about this. I said you don't have to go to a holy place, a designated place, to meet with God. And it's true. You can meet with God in your, in your closet, in your bedroom, in your dining room, in your car, right here in this chair, at home, in the parking lot. Anywhere you want, you can stop and say, here I am, God, can I talk to you for a minute? Anywhere. But let's be careful, because I've heard people say things like this. I don't have to go to church. I can meet God out in the woods. I can go sit next to the ocean and be with God. I don't need to be at church for that. Well, there's, that's kind of true. You can meet God anywhere. But too often we'll use that as an excuse to not come here. So I'm going to circle back around to what I said at first, Calvary Church. You are the church, all of you. We come here to be with God together. I can meet with God at home. But what I can't do at home by myself is worship with you. What I can't do at home by myself is be a community with you. What I can't do at home by myself is do the work that God has given Calvary Church to do. We all have to do that together. And we all are the temple of God together. There's no more hierarchy, is what it means. There's no more one priest in the most holy place. The rest of the priests is in the holy place. The men there, the women there, the Gentiles there. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. There's no more segregation. That's what that means. The, the curtain was ripped in two. And it's Christ in me. It's Christ in you. And you don't need someone else to be your mediator. You can go straight to Jesus. He's your mediator. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So how is this the hope of glory? How is Christ in me the hope of glory? Last week, Jim said, there's a really small word in the Bible that's huge. It's the word if. Two letters, if. So let's use that word. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, that curtain would have never been torn in two. If that curtain had never been torn in two, if it was still in place, the presence of God would still be contained in that room. There would have been no atonement. There'd be no reconciliation. There'd be no Christ in me. There'd be, if I want to get near the presence of God, I've got to get near that room. If that temple curtain had not been torn in two, Christ would not be in me. And Christ would not be in you. And if you did not have Christ in you, you have no hope. That's what this means. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Sealed with a promise. We're going to have the worship team come up. And they're going to lead us in a final song that's a celebration of Jesus and who he is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's Christ in me. That's God deciding it's time to tear the curtain in two and to dwell in his people. So we're going to sing this together. And while they get in place, I want you to just take a moment, sit quietly in your mind, 
and ask yourself this question, what does it mean to me that the Bible says Christ in me, the hope of glory?